Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. If you would stand with me, my name is Donnie. I'm one of the elders here. I'm going to read our scripture this morning. What book are we in? Yes, you guessed it right. <laughs> Luke chapter 17, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than should he cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your, brothers, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I'll eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again. And happy Labor Day. How many of you are going to cease from labor tomorrow? You know, in Jamaica, it's actually a work day. At Labor Day, they actually do labor. That was free. Okay? It has nothing to do with our text. Um, if I were to ask you, what is baseline Christianity? What's the bottom line? Right? What's, you know, this might be how you would typically, or how some of us might typically go at a question like that is similar to how I went after my educational career, at least most of it. Um, I, I was not a great student. Being a pastor has forced me to become studious. But in high school and college, a lot of the time, I just wanted the minimum requirement. What have I got to do? What's the bare minimum that I've got to do to get by? That's kind of the approach that I took. Now, pastoring has not allowed me to continue that approach, um, and hopefully you're thankful for that. Um, but going after the minimum is not really going to work to understand what baseline Christianity is. Because Jesus, he just keeps not letting us think about the minimum. He says things like, in, unless you forsake all that you have, give up all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. You are either for me or you're against me. 
And then in chapter 16, he, he made this statement, verse 13. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That just doesn't leave any room for us to be fuzzy, does it? It's like Andy said last week, a God plus life doesn't work. And Jesus rebuked, in chapter 16, he rebuked the Pharisees who were apparently attempting to do just that, live a God-plus kind of life. He rebuked them because they scoffed, they turned their noses up at this statement that you can't serve God in money. Like Andy said, I think their attitude was, well, yeah, we can. We've been doing that. Jesus says, no, you can't. And he, 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 we, he closes the chapter with a parable that says, if you attempt such a notion... A God-plus kind of life, whatever the plus might be, in this case money, it's not going to end well for you. Then in chapter 17, he turns his attention to his disciples. He's just rebuked the Pharisees, and now he's turning his attention to his disciples. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. I've got pretty strong protective instincts. I think I got that from my father. Um, I'm very protective. One of the things I had to learn early on as a parent when my kids were little is that they're going to get hurt. I can't stop them from getting hurt. They're, they're going to fall. They're going to scrape their knee. They're going to crash their bikes. They're going to get bruises. They're going to cut themselves. And when they hurt themselves, in a, a manner of speaking, my judgment falls. I might say to them, all right, we're not going to do that anymore because you're going to get hurt, right? But there's a whole different kind of judgment that would fall if somebody caused one of my children to get hurt. You with me? Right? It, I, you know, I can try to protect my kids. I can, I can guide them and steer them away from things and places and, 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 and activities that could hurt them. But here's what I know. More opportunities for them to get hurt are going to come. But woe to the one who harms one of my little ones. This is, this is how Jesus is talking about sin and temptation. He says, temptations are sure to come. We know that, right? He didn't tell us anything we don't know. The, the, literally in the Greek, the phrase is causes for stumbling. In other words, in this life, what's part and parcel with this life until the kingdom comes in its fullness is that there are going to be opportunities for us to be distracted or to stumble or be tempted to live a life that's different than the kingdom kind of life that he's called us into. Right? Everybody got that? Now, Eric said I wasn't going to get a lot of amens today because it's raining and it's Labor Day, but we, we'll have to change that right now. Okay? I'd just like to know you're with me opportunities to stumble are going to come. All right. But then he pronounces this oracle of doom. Woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better 
This is crazy. It would be better for a millstone to be hung around their neck and be cast into the sea than for them to cause one of these little ones to stumble. I don't think I have to give you a lot of historical detail about millstones, do I? They were heavy. And if you had one hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, certainly you would drown, but they were heavy enough they might break your neck before you hit the water. Woe to the one through whom causes for stumbling come. We know. We, we, we wake up in the morning, and it doesn't take long for us to, to, to find, discover, have something put in front of us that's distracting us or trying to pull us away from the kind of life Jesus has called us to live, right? But woe to the one through whose such things come. I was at my daughter's soccer game a week ago, and I was talking with a dad whose daughter's also on the team. And I know what church they go to. And I know what denomination that church is a part of. And in that particular denomination, and I don't even know how we got on this subject, but in that particular denomination, a great schism has occurred over issues related to LGBTQ+. And in the course of the conversation, I asked him, where did your church fall on that? And he said, well, we fell on the liberal side. We're not discouraging it. And he was so casual and matter-of-fact about it. And as I read this text this week, I couldn't help but think about that. That a church, it's one thing, temptations for sexual perversion are going to come. And in case you're wondering, here at Resurrection Church, the Bible is clear. All things LGBTQ plus and more are perversions of what God intended to be beautiful and sacred. Those, those kinds of temptations are going to come. But for someone in a position of spiritual authority to call evil good, this is serious, you guys. You know, it, it's, a, it's a daunting thing, I know, to find a church like if some of you have moved from other parts of the country and you've come here and you're maybe exploring Resurrection Church. Maybe you're going to take Discover Res or just have taken Discover Res. Maybe you were a part of a really good local church and you're looking. Looking for a church is, is a big, big deal. And understanding where a church stands and what's being taught is a huge, huge deal because Jesus makes it clear. We're not going to have to search hard for the opportunities to stumble, but woe to the one through whom those opportunities come. Obviously, he's saying this to his disciples. As he's saying this to his disciples, he's got the Pharisees in mind who are not only sinning by trying to live a God plus money kind of life to try to serve both God and money. That is their sin, but even worse than that, they're causing others to stumble in the same way. Certainly, Jesus has the Pharisees in mind when he pronounces this oracle of doom. That's really the only way to see it. But certainly to his disciples, he's not saying less than, don't do that. Don't be like them. And I don't know what the disciples were thinking and feeling at that moment. But I wonder if they weren't thinking a lot like 
perhaps we would in that moment? Oh, yeah, Jesus, we won't be like them. We're not going to be like those stinking Pharisees. We're not like that. Then look what Jesus says in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Some Christians might think that baseline Christianity is just avoiding sin. And certainly it's not less than that. But Jesus goes a step further. He says, you're not just called to avoid sin and certainly avoid not causing others to stumble. Here's the kind of life that I've called you to live. Here, here's, don't just look at the Pharisees and say, well, I'm not going to be like them. That's what we tend to do, right? We, we, we want to look at others and we want to pay careful attention to their flaws so that we don't have to acknowledge our own. Why do you notice the speck in your brother's eye and ignore the log or the plank in your own eye, right? That's what we tend to do. Jesus says, don't just look at them and say, I'm not going to be like that. Realize this is the kind of life I've called you to live. If your brother sins and repents, forgive him. And then if he does the same thing 15 minutes later and repents, forgive him again. And then if he does it a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh time in the same day and repents, forgive him every time. You didn't get it. Do I need to repeat it? Does that, how does that hit you? Does that, think about your own personal struggles with forgiveness. Think about the times when people have offended you, sinned against you. I'm not talking about when they broke your favorite coffee mug. But when someone has sinned against you in such a way that what you instinctively want to do is hold on to an emotional debt. You owe me. And you want to find a way to make them pay. You don't have to raise your hand, but just how many of you have struggled with that? I've struggled with that. I've told this story before, but years and years ago, in a, a lifetime ago, I, got, I was bivocational here, and I was doing some real estate, and I got partnered up with two people to buy a piece of property on the west side of Greenville. And um, we bought it in 2006. Anybody old enough to know what's coming after that? We bought it. We got a great deal. We were going to flip it. I was going to make a lot of money. And then the recession hit. And you know what my partners did? They bailed. They wouldn't return my phone calls. They wouldn't return the bank's phone calls. And I was left holding the bag on a significant debt. Long story, a lot of details. The Lord helped me and my family get out from under that in a pretty miraculous way. But I'll never forget how angry I was at those partners. 
candidly. I was bivocational. I was here at my office at this church, and I wrote an email to both of them. And I didn't use what would be considered in our culture cuss words. But boy, did I toe the line. And I remember reaching over, back then we had mouses, you know. Um, some of y'all still use those. I reached over to click sin, and I heard the Lord say, let it go. As clearly as I've ever heard him spoke, speak, let it go. And I'll never forget wrestling with the Lord about how do I do that? That's impossible. And then I said this to him like we always do, as if he doesn't know. Don't, do you know what they've done? Do you know what they've done to me? Do you know what they've done to my family? Do you know what they've done to my savings account? Do you understand how do I let that go? Do you know what the word forgive means in the Greek? It means to send away. Vacate. Jesus says, look, temptations to sin are going to come. Offenses, by implication, are going to come. Woe to the one through whom they come. And, and, the, and the disciples at that point might have gone, oh yeah, we're certainly not going to be like that. But he's like, no, pay attention. This is the kind of life I've called you to live. If your brother sins against you, and it's not like you get to number seven, and you go, nope, you're done. You understand that, right? No matter how many times, no matter what it is, how many of you know there are some emotional debts that just can't be paid back? You forgive them. You, you adopt a unilateral posture of mercy and you stand ready to forgive at a moment's notice. That's the kind of life I've called you to live. And if you're tracking with Jesus, like the disciples were, you respond just like they did. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. You hear the desperation? You hear the desperate plea? We can't do that, Jesus. Not in our own strength, not in our own power. That's not possible. Help. You know what? We might be tempted to think that when, when you, I, I imagine most of you at least have been in church long enough where this kind of merciful posture toward others, particularly those within the body of Christ, has been talked about. Like, this is not new, right? Like, you, you've heard of this before. Forgive them seven times, and you know that that doesn't mean that we just, you know, we got one of those little cards and we check off till we get to number six. You know that. But I think there's part of us that would like to think, maybe, that that kind of life is for the super spiritual people, 
Not the average ordinary Christian, right? Like that, those are the people that you look like, like your, your white-haired grandmother that she, she, she does nothing but read her Bible and pray all day. And you're kind of scared to walk in her living room because you're afraid the Lord might tell her what you've been doing kind of thing. Like, like th- th- those are the people that live in that kind of mercy towards other people. I had one of those grandmothers, by the way. And, and if you ever walked in the room and she said, you know, Bradley, I just feel like we need to pray. No, can we make biscuits, Grandma? Let's not. Did you notice that it, Jesus gives this command, this instruction to the larger group of his disciples? Verse 1 says, and he said to his disciples. But look at the beginning of verse 5. What does it say? He said to his apostles. That doesn't mean anything, does it? That, that, that's probably just a Luke messed up. It's a typo in the word of God, right? No, that's important. This is his inner circle that presses in from the larger group when he makes this command to live with a unilateral posture of mercy. It's the first string guys. It's the inner circle that presses in. These are people. We're not talking about, you know, people that have just joined the the Jesus group. These guys have already gone out and cast out demons in his name. They have healed the sick. They've proclaimed the kingdom. These are the people that are going to be integral players in the launch of the church age. We're talking about Peter, James, and John. They come to Jesus and say, if this is what you're calling us to, You're going to have to increase our faith because this is overwhelming. If you think about it, you ponder it, if you consider what this means, it's daunting, isn't it? Because some of you are sitting here right now and you're thinking about him, her, them, And you're going, you know what? I can forgive somebody that cuts me off on 85. But them, I don't don't know that I can let that go. I can't send that emotional debt away. This This is overwhelming. So the apostles ask for more faith. Now let's pause here for a minute and just consider what it is that they're asking for. Because when we encounter the word faith in the scriptures, you realize, right, that we're talking about something that has an element of simplicity to it, but also a significant element of mystery. Here's what I mean by that. We're going to get to chapter 18 pretty soon, and we're going to hear Jesus talk about faith as being childlike, simple, total dependence, right? We get that. It's it's simple, childlike dependence. But even though faith is childlike, the scriptures declare we can't produce it on our own. You would think that if, if something was that simple, 
just simple dependence, that that's something I could muster. I could, I, could, I could stir it up. I could produce it on my own. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. The only way that we have this kind of simple childlike faith is through a mysterious, miraculous work of the Spirit in us where our heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh or a soft heart is put in. Where our spiritually dead souls are awakened and quickened by the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's the only way we get childlike faith. Faith is dependence on God. Faith is confidence in God. Faith is trust in his promises. Faith is believing in his name. Faith gives rise to affection and it produces praise and thanksgiving. Faith is, it postures us in humility and weakness. Faith is all of that and it's supernatural. It's a supernatural, gracious gift from God. I quote this all the time, I know. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does that work? You ever thought about that? How does that work? Faith comes by hearing. I, I, I know what hearing is, and I know what the word of God is, right? So how does this produce faith? Well, According to Scripture, by sovereign work of God's grace, he quickens our dead hearts to life. Paul says in Ephesians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, what you, in which you once walked. But thanks be to God, he's made you alive in Christ, right? We are born again by the Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are brought from death to life. We're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We once hated light and loved darkness. Now we love light and hate darkness. We are born of God. This is all over our Bibles that God does something supernatural on the inside of us. That suddenly, when we come to the word and we read, be holy as I am holy. Not as Tanya is holy. Tanya is pretty holy. Like, like I, I look at Tanya and I get spiritually intimidated. But, <laughs> but to consider be holy as he is holy? Or to read, now again, an unregenerate, dead heart and soul will read that and go, Psst, okay, whatever that means. But when God does something on the inside, you read that and, and you read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And I, I see it on your faces. When you read that, what happens? You feel it. You might sometimes do what the Apostle Paul called quenching or grieve the Spirit. We do that, don't we? Right? It's, it's possible for believing people, born-again people, to read those words and just go, I just, I, I just don't want to deal with that right now. But when you pause and you consider you 
feel the magnified voice of the Holy Spirit prompting you to go, Lord, increase my faith. Increase my dependence, my trust, my confidence, my praise, my affection, my childlikeness before you because apart from your strength and power, I can't live that kind of life. This is what the word of God does to the regenerate heart is it awakens and it nurtures, it fosters, it magnifies faith. What did Jesus' apostles do when they heard his word? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. When the apostles heard the word of Jesus that says, this is the kind of life I've called you to live my brother sins against you seven times in one day or in a matter of hours, forgive every time. How did they respond? Increase our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Shameless plug, read your Bible. We go over this in Discover Res. We don't worship a book, but we are people of the book. God gave us a book. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's his word. And we read it, and what happens? Our faith gets nurtured. And when the apostles heard the word of Jesus, their cry was the right one. You know what's funny? Is it's really the cry of faith to say, Lord, increase my faith. How tragic would it have been for the apostles to respond to the word of Jesus and say, oh yeah, Jesus, we got you. We got this. We can do that. No problem. We've cast out demons, healed the sick, proclaimed the kingdom. Yeah, we're, we're good. We've, we've, we've reached that point. Do you realize there are no spiritual superheroes in the kingdom? Nobody gets the Christian life so down pat that you never find your yourself at a place where you fall to your knees and cry in desperation, Lord, increase my faith. Because why? What, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What makes us think? What makes us think? And I'm, I'm so guilty of this. That I should be at a place in my journey with the Lord where I, I never find myself falling to my knees in desperation, crying to him, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I don't think we should be surprised when that happens. I think we should expect it. It's been said the Lord won't put more on you than you can bear. That is a lie. He will absolutely put more on you than you can bear. Why? To increase your faith. And, and, and you would think that since the apostles responded this way, right? Is, the, is, it, is it the right response? Increase our faith. That's, that's absolutely the right response. And you would think, especially given the culture that we live in, that Jesus would just put his arm around him and go, y'all are doing so good. 
That's, I'm so proud of you. Here's your faith badge. Sew it on your shirt. It's not what he does. Instead, he gives them a parabolic statement and then a full-on parable. Let's look at it. Verse 6. And the Lord said back to them, they, they said, increase our faith, Lord. We, we can't do that in our own strength. He said back to them, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed. Anybody ever seen a mustard seed? It's pretty small. You could say to this mulberry tree, insert whatever tree you want, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Anybody ever tried that? Andy's tried it. I don't know anybody that's done this, that has literally said to, to a tree, be uprooted, plant, and it obeyed. But what's Jesus' point? I think it's this. If God instructed you to speak to a tree and tell it to move into the sea, it would only take a little bit of faith for it to happen. Small. It's not the spiritual superheroes that can do such things. It's not like you, you, you just sort of stock up this belief quotient that eventually gets you to the point where you can just start moving things like the matrix. No, this is Jesus saying, it, listen, whatever God tells you to do, whatever you're instructed to do, whatever I have commanded you to do, i.e., adopt a unilateral posture of mercy, It, it, it's only going to take a little bit. Just a little bit of dependence, a little bit of confidence, a little bit of utter and total abandonment to Jesus and to availing yourself to his power and strength for either a tree to be uprooted and moved into the sea or for you to live a life, for me to live a life, when someone sins against us, that we're able to vacate and send away the emotional debt every time, regardless of when it happens or how close together it happens, we can vacate that emotional debt, send it away, and forgive them. Really, I think, by implication, regardless of what they do only takes a little bit of faith. That's baseline Christianity. That's the minimum. That's, that's, that's what Jesus is after here, is, is, is a people that lean into him to live this kind of life, and it seems so overwhelming and daunting, but yet Jesus says it only takes a little bit of faith. And he puts an exclamation point on it with this parable. Verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, this is almost funny, come at once and recline at table. 
Will, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress appropriately and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done what you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Simple point. When you do your job, you don't expect your boss to not only give you your wages, but also a trophy. In other words, whatever I've told you to do, when you do it, that's baseline. You're an unworthy servant. You... When you stand ready to forgive those who sin against you again and again and again and again and again, you've only done what he commanded you to do. You see it? You're an unworthy servant who has obeyed. It's just baseline. You've done what you were supposed to do. And it might seem harsh from Jesus. Like he's an honorary boss looking at us going, just do your job. You know what? The more I stood on this, the more I smell the aroma of the Lord's kindness to us. Because I think we, I won't say all of us, but perhaps some or most of us, still struggle either consciously or subconsciously with this thought that in the end, what's really going to matter and gain me access into the kingdom of God is what I have accomplished, what I have done. That that's what gains me entrance into the kingdom of God. But yet we know this, don't we? we, we at least we've heard it, heard the truth. So we cannot come to the judgment seat of Christ and say to him, I was in church every Sunday for 30 years. You know, I, I, I was an elder. I was a minister. I, I, was, a, I was a deacon. I, I, gave, I gave my tithes every week. I ministered to the poor. I served the sick. If we were to come before the throne of God with such accolades, I think according to Jesus' words, we should understand that God would look back at us and go, you just did what you were supposed to do. You just did what I commanded you to do. And you might say, well, how is that an expression of God's kindness to us? It's because the command to live our lives as unworthy servants means that we have a constant reminder that our righteousness is as filthy rags. If we if we were able, and you know this isn't possible, but if we were somehow able to manage checking every box, dotting every I, crossing every T, and we were to come to the end of this life and stand before God in the next, apart from the righteousness of Christ, we are damned. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so how kind of it, of Jesus is it to say to us, here's the baseline. Don't just avoid sin. 
Yes, do that. Don't do less than that. Don't just avoid causing others to stumble. Don't do less than that, because that's terrible. But this is the kind of life I've called you to live, a life where you stand ready to forgive at a moment's notice. And when you do that, you've only done what I've commanded you to do as an unworthy servant. Faith, childlike dependence, desperate falling to our knees in utter and total desperation. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How much more kind could Jesus be to his disciples than to call them into a kind of life that beckons them to say, Lord, increase our faith. He couldn't be more kind. He couldn't be more loving than to keep us in that humble, weak posture saying, you know what? If that's the baseline, I'm going to have to have the Lord's help. It's only in his strength that I can live such a life. Because forgiving others not only testifies of God's mercy and grace to others, but it keeps us in this humble posture, it reminds us that we are unworthy servants. Jesus talked about forgiving like this. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Are we unworthy? Try that again. Are we unworthy? Yes, we are. We sing it all the time. You alone are worthy, not me. I think the joy of the Christian life is knowing that and feeling that, sensing that. Because it keeps us dependent on Jesus. And he could not be more kind to us than to beckon us into deeper faith. I'm going to do something kind of bold. And please hear me. If if you're not comfortable raising your hand, then don't. I I don't want, that's not my goal is to just make you squirm, squirm. But how many of you, with an uplifted hand, would just say this morning to, to your brothers and sisters, in some way or another, in some relationship or another, I'm struggling with forgiveness? How many of you would raise your hand and say that? Yep, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for being willing to be transparent. I think we all know what that struggle is like. And so here's what I want to do is I want us to pray together this morning, Lord, increase our faith, right? Because the answer is not for you or me to sort of manufacture mercy. Do you see that? Rather, it's to depend on him, his strength and power at work in us to send those emotional debts away as unworthy servants, humble before him, bringing him glory and honor as we do that. So I'm gonna invite you to stand um, and we're gonna pray this morning.
Let's bow our heads together. Lord, I realize that forgiveness for our sins was costly. To send away a debt doesn't mean that it gets swept under the rug. You didn't sweep our sin under the rug. You didn't sweep the offense that we committed against you under the rug. Instead, you poured out your wrath on your son. You, you, Jesus, you took our place and you took the punishment that we deserved. And now we stand forgiven and justified by believing that. And so it shouldn't surprise us, Lord, that you would call us to a similar posture toward each other, toward those that we know who have offended us and sinned against us. We're called to live your kind of life. We're called to we're called to become like you. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who, this is not about somebody breaking a coffee mug or they forgot to return our favorite shirt. There's some hearts in here that have been deeply wounded. And I don't think that you're insensitive to that, Lord. I don't think these words from you mean that you're insensitive. I think it's quite the opposite is that you would offer these words that at first glance are intimidating and overwhelming to call us into deeper faith. And it is right for us as unworthy servants to fall to our knees this morning and say, Lord, at least in that instance, with that person, you're going to have to increase my faith. And I hear the words of the Apostle Paul. You work all things together for good. Our conformity to the image of your son. And so perhaps we could find joy this morning in realizing and beckoning us to desperate dependence. You are already working things together for good. So I pray that those wounds and those hurts and those emotional debts that you would touch the hearts that have been wounded by those things and that you empower your people right now. Empower us all to live the kind of life, Jesus, that you have called us to live for your glory and for the spread of your fame. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.